Welcome to another interview from In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Simon Brown, a PhD candidate in history at UC Berkeley, and I had the chance to talk with Nasser Zakaria, professor of rhetoric, also at Berkeley, about his book, A Final Story, Science, Myth, and Beginnings. The book explores how scientists and their readers have turned to narrative forms of natural history, myth, and epic to explain how the sciences relate to one another and to the human past. His book ranges over systematic treatises of the early 19th century, to popular science in the early 20th century, to TV documentaries in the 1980s. We talk about scholarship and popularization, theology and mythmaking, and where humans have fit in our natural histories. So I wanted to ask about how you came to the scope of your book and the scope of the texts that you read. The book is structured around three distinct periods, roughly the early to mid-19th century, the early 20th century, and then the later 20th century, particularly the 1970s and 1980s. And throughout, you read a whole range of different genres. You read journal articles, popular kind of editorials, systematic treatises, and all the way up to TV documentaries. So I'm wondering how you came to see a similar question about the possibility of synthesizing scientific knowledge behind so many different kinds of texts. And did you come in with the thought that you would look at one kind of text and then you saw problems that it was dealing with outside in many other realms? Or did you already come in expecting this problem to pervade so many different kinds of sources? Uh, so, uh, all right, so these are good questions. Um, I think the, the original formulations that I had for the text, so this is way back in the, in the early dissertation stage, had more to do with questions of, very specifically questions of origins. And I was trying to look at claims that the sciences, for example, in the 19th century, imagined themselves as distanced rather than embracing questions of origins in trying to establish positive programs of knowledge. And I was comparing that to at the time contemporary discourses in scientific institutions, you know, the proliferation of origins institutions that claimed that the, the sort of the most important form of knowledge that science could offer was inquiry into the ultimate origins of things. And so it was partly weighing those that made it necessary both to expand the scope of the question to realize that the the character of origins, as I was trying to understand its debate, debates over it, was not actually something specific simply to itself, to a kind of ultimate point, but was much more distended in a kind of narrative structure. And also recognizing that the to understand the, the, the question of why there was, if there was, a kind of migration, sort of outward, uh, not outward, I should say, but over time into sort of the, into scientific discourse demanding uh, 
uh, the treatment of origins from not having allowed it in the past, whether or not I had to examine texts that announced the ambitions of the sciences that didn't necessarily, uh, that weren't necessarily found in technical documents. So in other words, so, you know, the, the, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, it was pretty clear that, that, for example, in, you know, one of the prominent debates between, between um, Huxley and Kelvin in the 19th century, uh, even though you might imagine that Kelvin is disavowing origins, the debate itself does not, mm-hmm. right? And the debate itself announces what would constitute knowledge on the basis of having such origins, right? Likewise, if you leap to present period, the, um, the question of, of what constitutes the sort of standard of knowledge in the sciences is not something that's necessarily prevalent in you know, technical journals in physics or in astrophysics or in, or in, um, in biology, but emerges often in, in genres that have to do with popularization, with funding, um, with, with broad forms of vernacular explore, exploration and education. Um, so in the end, I found it sort of necessary to look at a lot of these texts and move more on, on, on sort of narrative forms in particular. That's, that's really interesting. And I think it helps to understand how it is that you can bring all these different genres together, some of them being these technical and some of them being the more popular. Because one of the things I found so interesting about the book is the extent to which it seems these conversations in pretty much all the periods you cover, they're not so easily divided. And that what we think of as popular issues about the role of the sciences and the relationship between the expert and most and, and non-experts is that those questions are kind of always also informing the scientists themselves and their understanding of their own practice. So, I mean, do you think that in the process of moving from the, the technical text to the more popular text that you see a pretty consistent interaction between these kinds of texts and the problems that they pose throughout the period? or? Or do you think that that changes substantially over the course of the three periods you talk about? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, in a certain sense, I think that the impulse, well, let me not call it an impulse, the, the, the discussion remains so that you have thinkers who are willing to discuss synthesis um, from Herschel to Huxley to Shapley to Gamow to Sagan and and even Weinberg, right across this kind of period. So, like to just take a, a not quite random, but a group of those people across that period, they're all willing to discuss what it is that they think science is and what it offers to the world and what it offers to them. Um, And they're willing to do it in varied genres. But it is probably the case that there's greater 
there's there are shifting patterns, right? So, for example, um, you know, Kelvin is able to articulate a, a rather technical argument about the the age of the world and the age of the sun in a in a fairly you know popular journal, quote unquote, right? Whatever popular means at that time. Whereas, you know, Gamow is is writing generalist texts later on that presume the necessity of much, much more introduction, mm. you know, sort of a much more diffuse language um, so that the, the, what's required to be able to speak these different things in these different ways changes over mm. time, right? Probably in ways that you might expect in that, in that there is some formalization of genres. There's some, you know, changing expectation with regard to the voice that the scientist is imagined to speak to when, when speaking amongst themselves or amongst, you know, when within a sort of scientific um, symposium and when the, when, in, when the scientist is imagined to be speaking to a broader audience. And I, I mean, I'm using the word imagination seriously in the sense, not that these are, are forced things, but rather that the, the generic f- sort of expectation impacts the voice and vice versa, right? So that, so still, so, you know, you can find in, in technical journals, people saying that they're interested in, in producing broad syntheses of knowledge, but they'll tend to be very compact, right? Or they'll tend to be very abbreviated statements, Um so, you know, having said that, uh, Gamow is an interesting case um, point. So he's writing, when he's writing in post-World War II period, he, you know, it seems like when you compare some of what he's writing in, in, in his journal articles to what he's writing in his technical journal articles in physics reviews and what he's writing in his broad um, vernacular uh, popular texts, they often the paragraphs are often very very similar. You know the one the one thing that will be will sometimes be missing or be placed in an appendix are are the mathematical formulations. I think that actually leads really nicely into thinking about the the first episode that you really spend a lot of time focusing on, which is the conversations among primarily uh, English scientists in the early nineteenth century who are first beginning to apply the term scientist to their own work and to their own community. These are people, as you said, like Herschel and also people like William Huell. And so I was wondering, uh, since you described them as being an early group of, of scientific, scientists and scientific practitioners who are grappling with questions about synthesis in their own distinct way, what how you might think about the relationship between their aspirations to writing about and thinking about synthesis with and on the same at the same time them beginning to identify as scientists as a distinct class of of professional and of scholar do we see a relationship between the kind of the aspiration to synthesis or at least the intentional grappling with synthesis on the one hand and the identification with a special kind of scholar on the other? So, 
Yeah, so I'm going to keep repeating that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, the, the, I mean, the, I think the, there's more detailed ways of responding to that and there's a sort of broader strokes one. So maybe it's more important to try the broader strokes one for the moment, which is in, in a certain sense, I think, um, Herschel and Hewell um, do see a kind of potential vocabulary in the physical sciences for the for the possibility of a of a kind of broader rearticulation of of natural knowledge, and I think that you know for 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 both of them, Hewell perhaps still more, this is connected to both Baconian and Kantian traditions. So that they, so that in a, in a certain sense, they're both invested in, in the idea that, um, you know, prov on the provided certain limits to knowledge are, are underlined, pro provided there's a certain kind of broadly accepted chastisement of reason, mm. there is the possibility of a kind of broad strokes reconstruction of, of, of the project of knowledge. And with that, the possibility of a new form of scholar, mm. right? That, that person who articulates that knowledge, right? And this is, so, you know, the reason that I'm, I'm a little bit I, you know, there are, I, I, there are two, not quite reservations, but two important things to note with regard to this. For, for, for both, there are really, truly very strong limits mm -hmm. to natural knowledge. And so, you know, th this cannot be the project of, of imagining the sciences to undergird all mm -hmm. knowledge. This is, uh, on the one hand, um, some of this has to do with, with their beliefs in, in, in the you know the composition of the human, some with the with the relationship of of human to divine, um, and then but then the other piece of this is that you know, this isn't yet quite the 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 sort of imagined scientific professional that comes perhaps a little bit more to the four just after them, right? In the, in, the, in the X Club and with people like Huxley and Tyndall and so on in Spencer, you know, that, that where, where the, where that professionalization is, is even more strongly linked to, to particular kinds of rearticulations of traditions of knowledge, um, to, to in effect um, trying to to produce even more space for for the natural sciences, and therefore, as a result, to critique, uh, you know, as Huxley does, for example, what he regards as the limits of the humanist tradition, right? And, and some of that also being a kind of critique of what they see as a as a kind of you know sort of uh, flawed 
simultaneously a, a flawed basis for the for 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 the formation of the modern citizen or subject on the one hand and as a as something that stymies the possibility of 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 educating um talented people who simply cannot be uh who for whom there is no room to 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 engage in what feel to people like Huxley to be outdated forms of classical knowledge. Yeah, and so and, and so that gets exactly to what I was thinking about uh, with the kind of move from the early 19th century and those figures whom you described to the later end of the 19th century when things seem to change. And one of the differences as you describe them is on the one hand that some of these attempts at synthesis take on a more historical quality. That is, they, be, they become more, um, more narrative in their attempt at understanding the relationship between these branches of knowledge, which, as you say, is not really the project of someone like Herschel. And on the other hand, they also seem to encompass human society and human perception in their stories about the relationships among the sciences. So I was wondering, could, could you give it a bit of an explanation or give, give some kind of thought as to why the aspirations of synthesis over the course of the 19th century, by the time you do get to people like Huxley, become a little bit more ambitious, we might say? Uh, is it a story in part about the, the, the theological constraints on someone like Herschel to say just how much all these kinds of knowledge are connected? Or is there something else that might account for why why people like Huxley think that synthesis can encompass more and more? Um, so, I mean, I, I think there are many reasons and I don't think that there's a, that, 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 that the theological functions is simply uh, a kind of check on this, right? There are ways in which it's just following people like Martin Rudwick and so on. There are ways in which the, 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 the sort of older, not just older, even contemporaneous sort of religiously inflected natural historical narratives themselves helps to structure some of the scientific questions, right? They give the, they give the possibility of imagining that there could be a narrative synthesis of the world or that there's, there are figures like the Ark or something in which you could imagine something Cat that captures the full diversity of nature, right? So, um, but there's, you know, there's, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to attempt a slightly broader stroke answers in this. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I, th I think among the reasons, at least, um, that, that, you know, that I focus on, there, there's something that, that has to do first with across the, the the nineteenth century. There, for whatever reason, right, whether or not you want to be internalist about science and scientific evidence interpretation, or you want to to say something about a kind of increasing historical consciousness that seemed evident in 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 mm. in humanist disciplines and then started to. Um, also be felt in naturalist ones or simultaneously being felt in one, there was a kind of increasing of the scope of the historical. So, 
for for those people mm. who who focus a lot, who make an argument for for revolutionary language, some of this would be the emphasis, for example, on 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 Darwin or or preceding Darwin on chambers and, and vestiges. But the idea that that if you increase the, the scope of the historical range, you increase the possibility of synthesizing simultaneously disciplines of knowledge and that knowledge which they produce. Right? So that so that that's so you know so to 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 fix this in a certain way, you know, Herschel and Hewell, for example, um, make an argument that effectively says, let's keep geology and astronomy apart. And it's partly because the the astronomical, whatever you think of things like ordinary hypotheses, like the nebular hypothesis, really doesn't give the kind of immediate evidence for, for, for sort of the beginning, uh, a beginning to the order of nature that the geological does. So one is temporal, one is not temporal. Right. In a certain sense, that argument begins to erode and pressure is put on it by other disciplines of knowledge like the Darwinian frame, right? That in effect is struggling to find more time to account for these changes that seem absolutely inconceivable on the orders of knowledge, on the orders of time prior, like that were allowed by people like Kelvin, or certainly by people like by Herschel and Hewell, right? So you get this kind of expanding of the notion of a natural amount of time. And then you get in that context a kind of a kind of possibility of seeing that that natural history itself can be historicized, right? That all of these classifications that um that themselves seem to be fixed, you know, both classifications, again, of discipline and classification of, of the knowledge of the world are not themselves atemporal. And once they start becoming seen as all in the process of flux over time, then it starts seeming like history starts emerging, the historical in any case, starts emerging as the kind of arena in which one is forced to contend with the truths of natural knowledge. It's in the, the late 19th and certainly in the early 20th century, it seems that there's very explicit discussion about the way in which science now and some of these scientific narratives and some of these increasingly origin stories are in some way fulfilling a role that religion once played. And this is a a conversation among scientists themselves, but also it seems increasingly among kind of science journalism or those people writing about it. Um, One of the kind of the moments you described that made me think of this was this really interesting debate that was staged between with the astronomer Harlow Shapley a biologist and a theologian, all kind of talking about their uh, their own claims to tell a narrative about the about the world and its origins. So I was wondering, in this period, and what what where is this discussion about science's role as a possible replacement for religion coming from? Is it 
is it a largely is it largely driven by popular questions and maybe even in popular genres or is this a concern that scientists themselves are grappling with among themselves when they're thinking about the types of stories they ought to be telling yeah it's it's curious like if we focus on you know in a way so that conversation is certainly happening with with people like Shapley, it's it certainly predates him in the context of the astronomical. Like you can find something, you know, related, if not the same, even in in in, in Laplace, well before him. But there's there's a way in which there's a kind of almost pluralistic possibility, a kind of explicit, you know, there's the emergence of 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 sort of in in the context of debates like this, anthropological knowledges that that imagine differences in the possibility of different forms of myth that say in effect we can have you know we you know the the sort of distending understanding of the human takes with it a kind of knowledge of the fact that there are many many different uh, kind of organizing visions of of what the world is, and in a certain sense too, what that brings with it is the um, sort of the provincialization of of even the the those kinds of stories that are 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 imagined to be um, unshakable to sort of you know to the the to those people involved in these debates. I'm, all right, I'm speaking slightly too elliptically. What I what I mean to say is, there's there's a way in which the very fact of plurality, the very fact of the circulation of of many different accounts of the world, religious and non-religious, um, of different peoples and so on, brings with it the possibility of articulating new forms that aren't necessarily thrown out of account or treated as ridiculous, right? And so there's also, and this is where I said, where I began, weirdly enough, when I said it was curious, even though there are very robust traditions, religious traditions, that are very supple in their ability to engage timelines and certainly do not prescribe strict chronologies um, to worldviews. There are a number of scientists like Shapley who see the sort of dominant strains of the religion around them doing precisely that. And so then science becomes a place that can actually find hypotheses in the context of some religious discourse, dispute those hypotheses, and simply as a function of that, construct an arena where science is the other to religion and religion is the other to science. In other words, they both are competing over the same questions. What's more, more curious from that perspective, you know, perhaps especially in the United States context, is that that arena becomes, I think, thicker. There are the, there are, there are religious discourses and arguments, and this I cover more towards the end of the book, that in effect 
except uh, that the that the the world view of the that that the worldview of the of of religious discourses also offer empirical stories and empirical stories that by that point are heavily inflected by what science means as the empirical right mm-hmm. and so there's this kind of co-construction of what constitutes the category of myth what constitutes a kind of testable myth right and again i'm not using myth I say again, I mentioned this in the book rather than saying here again, myth here does not mean lie, right? It's just this kind of sort of this kind of thoroughgoing account of the world. And in this kind of context, the 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 there are certain empirical religious accounts and certain empirical scientific accounts, or empirically minded or inflected scientific accounts that are imagined to be contesting one another. Yeah, and that's interesting and and to think about how what that looks like in Britain, you talk about in the interwar period, in the mostly in the 1920s and 1930s, you have scientists and science writers like uh, like Huxley and like like JBS Haldane, who are kind of answering this question about science's relation to religion in what seems like pretty pretty ambitious ways, in that they're trying to articulate as you describe it, kind of evolutionary humanism, where it, it seems to almost be a replacement for religion and the kinds of scientific stories and the kinds of scientific myths that can be told seem to be actually actively on their in their accounts replacing what religion has done for humanity before. And also that comes with, as you describe, a, a certain kind of view of the role of the scientific community, almost like a kind of, if not a church, at least some kind of elite important almost clerical cast uh so i was just kind of curious if you could talk a little bit about how these conversations around science and whether it is doing the same thing as religion or can do the same thing as religion through myths and through these origin stories how that informs the way these people and maybe their contemporaries thought about the role of scientists themselves and the scientific community yeah, so this is so so you know, you know you can so Haldane, um, Julian Huxley as opposed you know the grandson of T. H. Huxley, um, E. O. Wilson. Um, there starts to emerge a kind of robust discourse that says something like, you know, the the emotional affective charge, the meaning-making possibilities that often in culture are associated with literature or with religion are active in the sciences. That if one pays attention or if these scientists um, themselves can convey what's taking place in what they're learning about the world, then what they find is, is, is... you know, something that produces its own kind of majesty, its own kind of awe, right? And people like like Haldane, in effect, accuse scientists themselves of being unable at that time, you know, for him, when he's writing in the 20s and 30s, at this point when he's saying things like this, that, um, uh, that they themselves lack a kind of literary sensibility to be able to convey this, 
right? And so part of what their work is is doing is laying the grounds for making that a sort of a mission of the modern sciences to be able to to convey all the possible meaning making that's present, right? That gets focused on things like like the the scale of the universe or the the kind of wonder that is provoked by by the different worlds that the that the universe that the universe suggests or that the sciences suggests are at play in the universe, right? And that, I mean, I think in the especially in the post-war period, post-World War II period, inflects the the position of the of the kind of the popular vision of the scientist, right, as a kind of universalist who is somehow able to speak the truths of the world and that that gets reinforced by by a vision of the sciences having produced in some simple straightforward way the kind of technical manifestations of the time right from you know the trope of the annihilation of distance um, to the production of bombs right so that that you know this kind of um, vision of the prophetic scientist starts to emerge in strength and and also gets linked to a kind of discourse that's often, at least in the popular texts that I look at, less to do with a kind of popular exploration of the principles of the sciences or of its activity or of the sort of day-to-day work of the scientists and much, much more to do with the question of what scientists what science it suggests itself for meaning making, you know, in, in the context of, of lives at the time and for prospects for the future of the world. Yeah. And at the same time as you are describing particularly how people are thinking about science in the post-war period, it's also interesting as you discuss in the book how this is a period of pretty great, pretty robust discussion among scholars about the nature of myth itself. So there's a lot of writing about myth from people like Wolf Adorno and Horkheimer and also from Hans Blumenberg and others of the middle of the 20th century reflecting on the nature of myth and on its relationship to various kinds of social orders and political systems. I mean, when you're reading scientists and their interlocutors talking about sciences possibilities for myth-making. I mean, are they are they reading this kind of work on myth-making? Are they thinking about it? Is there interaction between the groups of scientists talking about what they can do and what types of statements they can make and those working on the questions, whether from philosophy or anthropology or wherever, about what myth actually is? There's a lot of interaction between them. I, I don't think there's a lot of interaction. There's some there's some reading and some evidence of reading. So there's, so, you know, for a number of the later scholars that I look at, the primary understanding of myth is not through anthropology, but through things like Freud, Freudian accounts of myth, right. That are circulating a lot in the, in the period that they're looking at. There's also some attention to, um, to the anthropological, I, I think more through, through, you know, people like Haldane will discuss 
the ways in which, but in broad terms himself, the ways in which the anthropological is placing, placing pressure on the relationship of, of science and science to ethics and mm-hmm. vice versa. Um, but there are, you know, broad debates that at least some of the popularizers are aware of as to what's taking place in broad discussions of myth. There's some invocation of these. It's difficult to judge, like, you know, so, um, uh, you know, E.O. E. Wilson, for example, will refer to, to, you know, contemporary accounts of what constitutes an ethnos and a tribe and so on. Um, I, you know, whether or not he was reading those closely, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, I think that in the broader, in the broader kind of, if you like, set of cultural interchanges and discourses that that are taking place, you more often find people like the Blumenberg and Fry and so on trying to make an account of what myth means given the presence of the sciences in their day, right? And so, um, and then trying to square not necessarily in the mode entirely of critique as with Adorno and Horkheimer, but trying to square you know, their own accounts of what constitutes myth with the emergence of new scientific truth. That's interesting. So it sounds, so it seems like in, in some sense, the, the scientific aspirations and conversations around myth-making are informing the way the anthropologists and scholars of the humanities are thinking about myth and its role. At least it helps explain why it is that it's such a, a present question. Can I just make one quick? Can I? So one of the reasons that I was a little slower in that is it also depends on what you call science and which of the sciences are involved. Mm-hmm. So 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 um, uh, you know, are we talking about which forms of anthropology are we talking about? And are we, you know the anthropology of today is very different from the physical anthropology, for example, of the past or the cultural anthropology of both past mm-hmm. and present. Are these part of the sciences, do they themselves construct some of the templates, I mean, of the same natural sciences that are doing the kind of work producing myths, right? So it's part of the question that you're asking also has to be put through the kind of, the kind of frame of, of the sort of disciplinary configurations of, of then and now. Yeah. Sorry, what to say. No, oh, yeah, no, no, that's, that's helpful since it's not so obvious. Um, that there are, that the, that these are two conversations or two groups that have interaction, but rather uh, that there's that there's 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 if not overlap, there are connections which we might not assume now because of the way we think about disciplinary configurations in the 21st century. But moving from from myth, since myth is an important category for you, and you describe the the myth making potential of the sciences, and that is a problem throughout. By the time we get to the late 20th century, uh, primarily the 1970s and 1980s, uh, there's a, a category that you describe at length, uh, particularly the epic, the scientific epic. And in particular, you associate the epic with new kinds, new genres, and new media of popularization and of scientific synthesis. And the 
the example you spend probably the most time on is uh, Carl Sagan's Cosmos. And so I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about how the epic takes a particular form, what the scientific epic looks like and how it might differ in structure and, and why it is that it's new media like television that help make it, uh, make it a popular way of thinking about scientific synthesis in this period. So the, so the, okay, so there are several answers to this. So what, so, or I'll take several parts of the question. So one is that the, the, in the hands of someone like Sagan, the epic starts to become this kind of way of attending to not just the beginnings and endpoints, not just the, the sort of the, what, the, what the physical sciences might argue are some of the most important moments for the formation of the world, um, but also for a kind of collective moving together and the idea of a collective moving together. Right, so that so that it starts being this this sort of vision of of a kind of vast temporality in which there is simultaneously the emergence of life, and life becomes a central hero, and mind becomes a central hero, and ultimately scientific truth and knowledge, and the scientist as the figuration of that is a central hero of this quest. Right, where simultaneously you have the world coming into a kind of more intricate being and coming into a self-consciousness of itself, right, that names itself. So the epic becomes then also, you know, so, so far this could all sound itself what would be the right way to say this, impractical or, or even, you know, quasi-spiritual. And there's an element to this. But it also itself stands for a disciplinary configuration by virtue of this. It, in a, you know, the work that it does is it says that there are certain disciplines that are focused on writing different moments within this epic, right? So in... in in, in one way, certain kinds of hard physical sciences would write an, an early chapter. Certain kinds of biological sciences would write a middle chapter. Perhaps certain, you know, future anthropological political sciences, uh, a still later chapter. They're all sort of operating together and then giving themselves this sort of mission of producing a greater self-consciousness in the writing of this very story so that the the kind of this sort of epic hero is in this quest to, you know, to what is self-knowledge and a fuller articulation of this account simultaneously, right? So that's mm-hmm. part of the possibility. The, 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 the question of the media and of television and of the way, what's, what, what seems... And you know, interrupt me, Simon, if I've if I've forgotten an element of the question. There's the the these what Sagan and before him Bernowski in England, you know, both sort of take the opportunity to do 
is to sort of produce a kind of broad and and um, ritualized audience, as it as it were. They are addressing what television allows them to do is to address routinely an audience at a kind of you know rhythm, right? From one week to the next, where they are laying out a particular kind of vision that they immediately argue is a synthesis of the knowledge as it's understood to the present day, right? So it's it's something that that you know that you know more than you know I say this with some hesitation, but more than than popular media almost because it has this kind of, you know, we're going to air these like with, with Sagan on the weekends, you know, um, week by week, we're going to have meetings about them. We're going to have collective viewings of them. We're going to have discussions of them. And for both of those popular series that they produced for, for Askew was the Ascent of Man several years before, um, there are going to be uh, classroom gatherings. There is going to be the introduction of these television shows into, into um, schools, um, even in the college level. So that, you know, the, the broader way in which they are seizing on a particular kind of pedagogical um, and sort of community building form of television allows for a kind of formalization and a making more concise of the scientific epic that they're proclaiming. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, that you mentioned in re, in relation to the scientific epic that I did find so interesting is the extent to which it's organized in such a way, at least in the example of Cosmos, it's organized in such a way that it actually places the history of science itself as a kind of a, an organizing an organizing principle. In other words, when you when you're watching Cosmos, you're also watching the history of how different human societies though primarily Western science, have come to understand the physical world, which is also being described in the show. So uh, it, that's, so do you think the epic has that kind of potential for inclusion of humans' own scientific thinking in a way that other genres don't? Is that something that's, that's unique or perhaps new with this, this epic form? Well, it's certainly, it's certainly, if you like, a, a kind of power that it has. And I think it, it's, it, it's, it's unique to it in, to the extent that, that, you know, it sees the, the sciences themselves. I mean, so the epic form is allowed to be and needs to be all-embracing. Right? So it has, so it embraces a certain sort of totalization. And then as a result of this, it, it is licensed to look at past attempts to produce truth as part of its own movement towards a sort of more final truth, right? Towards finalization. But having said that, as a result, even you know, in the attempts of older, newer um, epic syntheses, there's often a way in which the sort of the greatest compliment that these sciences imagine that they play to past cosmologies is that they are 
are related to present ones and ultimately succeeded by present ones. They're not ones that necessarily, so that they, so they have by their own lights a kind of capacity to totalization, but it's not one that necessarily will, will allow so much difference that it says these other truths were themselves worlds no less valid than present worlds, right? If we start thinking of certain kinds of reading, for example, of you know, famous readings of Kuhn and past cosmologies in comparison to present ones. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting arc to take from from the beginning to the end and to think about how the history of science gets itself written into these long stories. And well, we've talked for some time about this arc. Uh, I was wondering if you would mind uh, talking about uh, what projects you're working on now or if you're working on something new. So... Um... So I'll, I'll, I'll talk about one thing just briefly. So there, there was, there's an element that appears in this book that, you know, you've already mentioned one of the people who kind of is important for it, um, Blumenberg. Another person is, is uh, uh, who articulates, you know, roughly the same time, C.S. Lewis, these notions of what C.S. Lewis referred to as the anthropoperipheral and what since that's difficult to say, what I've contracted um, often to the anthropoperipheral, or just the anthropoperipheral rather, um, which is these these kinds of um, traditions or discourses of thought that uh, pay attention to not just what constitutes the centrality of the human, but to the marginality of the human. And so... Um, I've been looking at materials that have been um, debating these kinds of these kinds of arguments. In some of those materials, are you know likewise found um, at periods that overlap with with this with with the final story, um, sort of, but. But the primary materials that I'm looking at now tend to be post World War II, and they are, you know, confronting visions of, you know, we come actually to something um, earlier that you're asking, to visions of knowledge, to visions of the history of science that imagined science as a, you know, progressive, decentering, uh, and chastising of the human. And so, uh, you know, one of the dominant uh, tropes in this is, you know, Freud's claim regarding the different blows to the human performed by Copernicus and then Darwin and then uh, and then uh, modern psychology and psychoanalysis. And so that gives this kind of this claim that it constructs a vision of 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 the human as having been flattered by their own position in the world in the past by their centrality and then um, and then somehow constantly finding through the rise of the modern sciences that they weren't in as privileged a position as they thought. And that kind of argument still plays into some of the vocabulary of the modern sciences, like if you look in in modern cosmology texts and so on, 
there's a, a notion of the of the cosmological principle or the Copernican principle. Let's say something about about the the ways in which the position of the human should be assumed to be not privileged. So part of what I'm examining is the ways in which there's a kind of more complicated account when you pay attention to the ways in which past discourses did not simply flatter the position of the human, did not treat, for example, even being physically central as something that was desirable, right? That, you know, um, the center, the earth being at the center of the of the cosmos could also mean that the earth was a cosmic dustbin, as it was as one reference to it. Um, that the position of the of the human, even if condescended to in being in being um, reached out to by by God, uh, according to certain sorts of theological visions, nevertheless doesn't promote the human as being necessarily high in the chain of being. And this is even in the context of Western tradition. So, um, so that, that that kind of account of the decentering that the sciences do in the context of the, of the history of sciences and the history of, of visions of the figure of the human or just of the figure of the human, um, I want to try to square with these kinds of more complicated discourses that, that suggest that it's very hard to say that in the past, the, the position of the human was 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 simply flat. Yeah, that sounds like a rich and really exciting topic, and I can see how it draws from your thinking in this book. And I'm excited to read more. Uh, Professor Nasser Zakaria, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us today. Thank you very much, Simon. I really enjoyed the conversation.